Hello, and welcome to episode 26 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. As you listeners may know, Carl is also the host of the 30 Love podcast, and this week he's been on a bit of a kick with people named Glenn, Glenn Hill and Glenn Greenwald, but I, I have it on good authority. You can expect guests with other first names coming up, so definitely check out his podcast as well. For this week, as usual, we have a ton of tennis to talk about. We have some interesting results from the last week in Rome at the Clay Court Masters there, the return of Novak Djokovic, and the return of Maria Sharapova, um, a big match between Djokovic and Nadal, and some analytical implications from that that I want to get into. But let's just start with the finals from this, this last week, and let's start with Zverev Nadal. Now, I just finished calculating the men's and women's ELO results from well, up to up through yesterday. And now that Zverev has gotten to a final, he has capped what's really an amazing clay court season, challenged Rafa on clay. He overtook Dominic Team as the number two player on clay on uh, according to the ELO system. So, Carl, we've been talking about Zverev for, I don't know, two or three weeks now in every episode. And... I'll ask you a similar question to what I asked you last week, which is now that we've seen him perform well for yet another week, rack up some more defeats, now he's even won a set from Nadal uh, rather handily in this case, a 6-1. What does what this change about what you expect from him? I mean, does, does this mean we expect even more big things from him in the future, whether future means next week at Roland Garros or you know five years down the road? I think it does a little. I, it caps a really great clay season for him where he made semis in Monte Carlo, won Munich, and then won Madrid and final in Rome, coming close against Rafa, I think up 3-1 in the third set before losing it 6-3. I think the big question mark will remain, can he transfer it to a Grand Slam? He's been pretty mediocre at Grand Slams, and this is the best preparatory season I can think of that he's had going into one so how will, how will that shake out yeah that w- will be a big test and we don't we don't really know whether his issues are just sort of a fluke of how he feels during these fortnights or whether there's a best of five set thing going on but what I found interesting about the the ELO results was it moved him within about 125 points of Nadal which in the ELO system means that he now has about a one in three shot of beating Nadal according to this system if you move that, to, you have to adjust it a little bit for a best of five match. So maybe between between 20 and 25% chance of winning. Based on what we've seen from Nadal, who I mean, pretty much has overpowered everyone, except for that one set against Zverev yesterday, do you believe that? Do you think that Zverev has anywhere close to a 20, 25% chance of knocking off Nadal at the French Open? I do. I think the big question, as usual, will be getting to that match, and Rafa has a much better chance of doing it and the ELO reflects that. But Zverev will have the other side of the draw with Federer not playing the clay season again. And if he gets to that match, I think that's reasonable. I mean, he really came close yesterday. He didn't come that close in that it was 6-3 in the third set, but up 3-1 in a deciding set is impressive. And Rafa hasn't had it all his own way during this clay season. He also lost a set to podcast favorite Fabio Fanini before dominating the last two. And he was straight-setted by Dominique Team, who I think has now beaten him in something like three straight clay seasons. So Nadal, in retrospect, often seems unbeatable on clay. But going into a tournament, I think that would be foolhardy. I think we can expect him to win the tournament, but still understand that against certain players, he faces real jeopardy. No, I, I agree with you. Yeah, it's, it's easy in retrospect to look at these dominating performances and, and think they were, they were destined somehow, but clearly they weren't, given how many times he doesn't manage to come out of the tournament with the trophy. But do, do you think that maybe the... I hate to use this phrase to raise everyone's hackles, but let's say we're in a bit of a weak era right now. Federer isn't playing on clay. Djokovic hasn't been... We'll talk about Djokovic more later, but... But he hasn't been a factor until this past week. So it feels like a relatively weak set of competition compared to what Nadal was dealing with a few years ago, five years ago. Do you think that maybe the quality of competition is masking a bit of a decline from Nadal? I mean, is it possible that he's not the clay court player he was five years ago? 
Definitely possible. He's even, yeah, five years ago seems like about the right time. I'm thinking if we can think of a period when Djokovic was more dangerous and when Federer was still a factor on clay or when Federer kind of wasn't, but Andy Murray finally figured out how to play on clay and David Ferrer was was more of a factor, Vavrinka was looming. All four of those other guys, did I name four? Yes. You might name five. I think I named Murray. five there. Yeah. Those are five guys who at their peak on clay were, you know, plausible number one on clay in a period without Rafa. And maybe Ferrer, that's a little generous. But, you know, Ferrer at his best on clay was really tough out. And Rafa now really is, we're talking more about Zverev and team, and I don't think they're yet in that category. I think team maybe is closer to his peak. Zverev is still rising. But this might be one of those seasons that we look back on it and think this was a this was a good moment for Rafa while he was still young and his next top rivals were still developing. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I happened to watch the 2012 Barcelona final uh, yesterday or the day before, pretty recently anyway. And that was Nadal Ferrer. I think the final score was 7-6, 7-5. And holy crap, that was some good tennis. I mean, that was just bludgeoning, blistering rallies on what felt like every point. I don't think the Rafa of today, and certainly not the Dominic Team or the Alexander Zverev of today, would have beaten that version of David Ferrer. And I think we we forget how good David Ferrer was, um, partly because he's he's faded somewhat and he's not much of a factor now, even though he's still entering most every event. But because we never got to see him lifting very many trophies at his peak because you know, he, he was losing to Rafa in the final so often. Uh, but he was a really, really good clay court player and Rafa just w- was always better. Uh, that It's more competition than I think Rafa's facing now. Um, back to Zverev for a minute. One thing I noticed is he's he's been winning a lot of close sets. I mean, that's kind of your your fate if you're going to rely on a, on your serve as much as he has, no matter how good your serve is. And I noticed in the last 52 weeks, he's got a really strong tiebreak record. And this year, he's eight and two in tiebreaks, including a few recently that are really long, close ones. I think there's a 15-13 and a 13-11, and I think he lost a 14-12 tiebreak to Yannick Hoffman in Munich. Uh, the ones this past week were to Chilich and Kyle Edmund. Um, do you think that that that's a bit of a of a warning sign for Zverev? That I mean, if if you're relying on winning twelve, ten, thirteen, eleven tie breaks, do you think that 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 that's going to even out for him? And maybe we won't see him dominating sequences of events like this because maybe his return game isn't quite good enough to to win enough sets. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always uh, a troubling sign to see. I, I tend to look at the match overall just because most matches won't have tiebreakers if it, unless you're, let's say, John Isner. And there are also a couple of wins that he's had where the other player has won a higher percentage of return points, which is usually an indicator that you're likely to win the match. Uh, he he survived early rounds in Acapulco and in Miami. And in Miami in particular, he made the final and could have very easily lost in his first match. And and that one, in fact, was also a, a close tiebreaker in the third set. So you would capture it either way. So I think we could expect some reversion to the mean for him. But you have to counter that with the reasonable expectation that a guy who just turned is continuing to get better and maybe continuing to get better really fast. So maybe next year he has a 500 record. Well, you'd expect him to have a higher than 500 record because he's a better than average player in tiebreakers, but maybe not 9-2, and which is what I see now on TennisAbstract.com, a wonderful site. Uh, So maybe his tiebreaker record would fall, but his match win percentage could still rise next year. Yeah, that's true. And I don't want to make too much of this because if, if he is nine and two, then maybe we would expect him to be six and five at the worst, maybe seven and four. So we're talking about flipping the results of two sets. And maybe that means 
in, in one of those cases, he ends up winning in three sets. The other one, he ends up losing. So we might be talking about one match at this point. But I do know that when I was looking at tiebreaks more often and more closely a few years ago, uh, it was it was kind of a signal that we were rating Milos Ronic a little bit too high because he, he when he first broke through with his his best early season. Uh, it, it was with this unreal tiebreak performance over the whole season. I think he had an 80% tiebreak record over the course of a full year. And almost no one's ever going to sustain that. Maybe, maybe no one is ever going to sustain that, except maybe maybe Federer. You have to be so good and probably have some, some clutch play kicking in there too that most players aren't going to keep that up. Uh, Speaking of that sort of clutch play, let's let's switch over to the women's final. We'll come back to the men uh, in a little bit, especially to talk about Djokovic. Can I just Djokovic. get one quick Ferrer yeah. note in there? Yeah. So from Barcelona 2008 through Roland Garros 2013, so a period of a little over five years, uh, Ferrer played Rafa in clay finals eight times and lost all eight times. And he won seven, six other clay finals. So he, Nadal really was the Ferrer blocker, and Ferrer really was that good on clay. Yeah, and and yeah, like I said, if you can find the 2012 Barcelona final, that there might be better ones to watch, but that's a really good one to watch to see just how good those guys were at that point, um, particularly Ferrer. Like he. It, it didn't look like the the king and a wannabe. It looked like it, it, it looked like a couple guys. Either one of them could have been number one. Um, it was that good. So that, that's actually a good segue to the record in finals because it, it, that's an interesting point about Alina Svitolina, who won the women's side of the Rome tournament. She beat Simona Halep in the final pretty easily, as it turns out. Uh, she defended her title. She beat Simona last year in Rome as well. And Svitolina has, she's actually pretty comparable to Alexander Zverev in that she's racked up a ton of premier level titles over the last year or a little more than a year. I think she holds at least three, maybe four of the premier trophies right now. Uh, and in her career, she's eight and two in finals, which is pretty impressive, especially considering that two of those wins are against Simona Halep on clay. And it, it compares really strongly with Simona herself because for everything that Halep has done well winning most of her matches. She's not been good in finals. She's lost six of her last seven and not won very many matches against top three, top four players, which is something I think she would hope to do if she wants to win a slam. So what do, what do you think about a finals record like that, Carl? It's obviously a different animal than a tiebreak record, but it also seems to be something that's not quite as... as it's not as sustainable because it, it is a small sample. You would expect it to even out over time for a player who's not like a Serena-style greatest of all time. Do you think that, you know, Svitolina is on to something? She's a big match player in finals, or are we going to see her, her regress to the mean there? Yeah, it's a great question. The two players who come to mind in recent years who have sustained excellence in final rounds of tournaments, and I mean excellence relative to what you'd expect given their overall excellence, are Serena Williams and Rafael Nadal. And those two players are, Serena Williams is the popular choice for greatest of all time, and, and my choice, and Rafael Nadal is, has a really good case. And Svitolina doesn't. This is a very small sample we're talking about, and there are probably other players who outperform in finals, and I'm looking forward to Jeff's blog post on it, uh, or maybe an update of a previous one I'm not recalling at the moment. But I I think it it's unlikely for Svitolina to sustain it unless there's something about she goes into certain weeks really strong for some physical or mental reason, and those weeks she's an incredibly formidable opponent, and other weeks she just isn't. And I would guess it might be mental because slams aren't that different unless something about she recovers incredibly well uh whereas at a slam even though it's also best of three you get the day off in between but we're, we're still really sort of gesturing in the dark of small sample sizes here so i i don't really know what to do with it it does feel meaningful that she won 
in something of a route yesterday. Halep didn't have a break point, and Svitolina... Wait, that was my recollection of the match. Tennis Abstracts shows something different. Yeah, I think they broke each other in the second set. Okay. Um, Svitolina, and Svitolina bageled her in the first set. So it was a pretty dominating performance, but that's an even smaller sample to draw conclusions from. Yeah, and maybe this is just my Simona Halep fandom talking, but I, I would caution against drawing conclusions from that match. I think that it, her semifinal match against Sharapova was, it, that was the emotionally and mentally draining match of the tournament for her. And I think if if Simonin had to choose between beating Sharapova and beating Spitalina, she would have picked Sharapova because that's that's sort of the hump she's had to get across. And the head-to-head between those two was 6-1 in favor of Sharapova, including some really big matches, a Madrid final, uh, obviously the Roland Garros final as well. So even though Sharapova is not her peak self right now, uh, that's a major mental block for Simona. So I think that I think she even said something like that after the match that she was a bit tired from from beating Sharapova, and I think sometimes Halep is able to bounce back from something like that and just come out and play like a backboard until she gets into it or gets that energy back. But I don't think you can do that against Svitolina. You, you certainly couldn't do that against Svitolina yesterday. His um, Svitolina just did that only better and without any sort of fatigue to deal with, but. I think we mentioned this last week that last year's Rome final went the same way, but then two weeks later, they faced each other in the quarterfinals of Roland Garros. It was a really close match. I think Svitolina had match points. And, she did, yeah. Yeah, and Halep turned it around. So the one I, the one kind of ironic good thing about this is that by winning, by defending her title, Svitolina kept the number four ranking and by extension, the number four seed. So it's impossible that they'll face each other before the semifinals and only a 50% chance they'll face each other before the finals. So there's no possibility of a rematch in the quarterfinals of Roland Garros. And I would think Simona has to be happy about that. Um, should we should we talk more also conversely about her record in finals? About Simona's yeah, one you, in last seven? Yeah, do you have thoughts about that, Carl? Well, one is that it's... You know, we've talked recently about what kind of era we're in in the WTA and what to make of the current top of the class. And Simona and Wozniacki, who played that very exciting Australian Open final to, to really start the season, have been going back and forth on the ranking and, and they're really close. And they've both struggled in finals. I mean, someone had to win that match, which sounds like I'm saying that neither one played well. I think they both played well. But in terms of finals records, uh, not only has Halep lost six of the last seven, but Wozniacki's lost, let's see here, seven of the last ten. So they've both managed. This glass half full perspective is, wow, have they done well to top the rankings despite not getting all of those points that are available when you you reach a final and then win one. Um, In... Halep's case, even though she's had the worst record, I think there's less to be concerned with because the Wozniacki final is one of four of those six that she's lost that she was right in. There were two others that were three sets. And then against Garcia in Beijing last year, Halep actually won a higher percentage of return points. So overall, pretty good stats, just not a great outcome. Maybe it means she has to be tougher late in in tight sets and finals. Wozniacki has a lot of straight set losses. Yeah, and we talked about this some, I think, going into the Australian Open or after the Australian Open. I don't remember when we were able to record back then. But it, I, I don't know. It, it's it, I, I don't like putting a, so much emphasis on a specific round or a, a specific anything, really. I mean, if, if we look at all the data we have for Simona against good players, then... Her record looks pretty good. If we look at her record in quarterfinals and semifinals, it looks pretty good. And maybe there's something mentally going on that is causing a problem in these close finals. And I know she's talking to a sports psychologist now. I don't know what that, if that means anything or it will net any results. But I mean, it, there seems to be an awareness that that's an issue, if it is. But... I don't know. Like you say about the, the Wozniacki-Halep final, something had to give. Somebody had to win that. And 
that's going to keep happening, I think, on the WTA, unless someone comes out of nowhere to suddenly dominate. And I, I don't see who that would be. I mean, Svitolina is one contender, but I think it's more likely that we'll have another year or two of the WTA looking like it is now with three or four different slam winners every year, and maybe none of them end up being the year at number one. And in that case, to me, it's just a matter of time before Simona wins the slam, until she picks up a couple more finals wins. Uh, yeah, I, I, I try not to read too much into it. Yeah, and part of this is a lot of those, let's say, Rafa, Serena finals, they're going to be the heavy favorite because of how great they are all time. Simona is a great player of Herrera right now and there are a bunch of others who are nipping at her heels and in the last 12 months the top players have been pretty consistent about getting to the later rounds or, or some subset of them have been so you don't know exactly which ones so Halep has been playing tough players in these finals yeah uh, one of the stats that and, that I've seen on Twitter the last couple of days is how bad Halep has been against top four players which seems like a little bit of cherry picking or selective samples even even if it's not meant to be that just because the top four top five has been so inconsistent over the last few years so so sure she's not beaten serena very often and in that time serena has mostly been in been number one or number two but i'm not sure that number three and four in on the wta for the last few years has has been that much different from five through eight or something like that uh, it's just so much in flux. And we'll come back to that a little bit. I want to talk more about Sharapova, just not yet. And Sharapova certainly lurks as a lower-ranked player who's very dangerous. She played so well against Simona in the semifinal. But I want to switch back well, one to... One quick thing is yeah. just to look... I looked that up to see, and Halep is notably better against number five than she is against one through four. So huh. uh, there was a little bit of selective cutoffs there. Okay, Some, somehow I'm not surprised, but I, I wanted to give that person the benefit of the doubt, even <laughs> if they didn't deserve it, and if I don't even know who it is. Um, Very so yeah, that's, th- that's, that's the key stat there, Simona versus number five, um, which actually, I think number five this week might now be Ostapenko, which it would be nice if she continues beating number five if they have a Roland Garros rematch. <laughs> but as promised, back back to the men. Um, we've been we've been talking about how uh, how we need to reevaluate these players, it, and Zverev. It seems like we need to take him up a notch after seeing him put together another great week. Uh, Spitalina, we need to continue taking seriously. That uh, the the big mover, I think, in terms of perception, is Novak Djokovic, who finally put a few wins together. He he won a close match against Kane Shikori in the quarterfinal. He finally got another matchup with Nadal, their 51st of all time, I think, and managed to play a really tight first set against Nadal. Definitely something that could have gone either way. At times, it looked like uh, the Nadal-Djokovic matches of years past. And the, the question then is, is this a fluke or is Novak back? I mean, it, we can talk about more about this uh, after we talk specifically about Novak, but I did run some numbers to adjust ELO for for injury absences, and even when you do have add a pretty a pretty substantial point penalty for the amount of time Novak has lost and the number of losses he's sustained since he's come back, Novak still was the number three player on the ATP in terms of ELO ranking. So, algorithmically speaking, we should never have counted him out. Uh, some of his recent results maybe suggest that we we could count him out, but. I think he's reversed that narrative a little bit. So, Carl, you told me that you were able to watch that match. What do you, where do you think Novak stands right now relative to the rest of the pack? I think Elo captures it pretty well. I mean, I, I, this is not yet the Novak of old, and I don't want to make too much of that match or, or really of one set because he was not the same in the second set and, and really faded away in his last service game. But he... He's not really dealing with that many players who you would rank ahead of him right now. I mean, just like scanning down the Clay Elo list and thinking, okay, which of these guys, you know, maybe Nishikori, because Nishikori has had more overall success this season and is particularly tough on Clay. But Djokovic just beat him. I don't want to make too much of it, but he's Djokovic has also dominated that head to head and. Djokovic, both both of them coming back from injury, the old story probably prevails that Djokovic is basically better at everything than Nishikori is, that, and they have similar game styles. So, yeah, difficult to see who 
you would move ahead, especially because his lead on clay is, is actually really big. It's almost 100 points on Nishikori, and then after that you've got an idol Andy Murray and 130 points on Goffin, and then 165 on Vavrinka, who's barely played this clay season and unfortunately looks like he's unlikely to come close to defending his finalist points at the French Open. So, yeah, go Elo. Yeah, I was I was interested in that too. And, and when I first when I got the first wave of results from that revised algorithm, I, I was surprised to see Djokovic so high. But one of the factors there is that he was. It's easy to forget since it wasn't that long ago, um, or since so much has happened since not very long ago, that he was so good. I mean, it was less than a year and a half ago we were looking at Djokovic and Murray as you know leading us into another top two generation where they were just going to win everything and then they both pretty much stopped winning anything but that wasn't that long ago and in elo terms he hasn't lost very many matches i mean he's lost plenty of points for the matches he's lost but there's a a penalty now for the time he he missed but even with that like he, he he started so high that losing two or 300 points means he's still he's still in the mix and that got me thinking about about something that Every week I ask Carl the same sort of sets of questions like, okay, coming up in this in this big draw, who do you expect to win? Who do you think might knock off Nadal? And I think that's the usual way to talk about tournaments as they're coming up. It's just think about who's going to win, what their odds are, that sort of thing. But I wonder if that's not quite the right way to think about it for Djokovic. Because it, it having seen Djokovic lose a few times in a row it's easy to imagine him continuing to lose. Like, you don't really want to pick him to win because he struggled so much. But a different way to think about it would be, if he did win, then how surprised would we be? And if you ask that question about every player, then, okay, if Nadal wins, we're not going to be surprised at all. If Zverev wins, we won't really be surprised. Might be a little surprised if he beats Nadal, but we expect that him to do that. Team, maybe in the same category. After that, it's got to be Djokovic. I mean, it it's, might seem far-fetched to think of him coming back from some of his recent losses and winning a Masters title, but imagine what the headlines would be right now if Djokovic had won. I mean, they would they would be saying he completed his comeback. They would be saying he's returning to his old form. It wouldn't be Djokovic wins Rome with shock victory. I mean, there, there's not much right. of a surprise about it. Whereas and he was everyone... Else last year. Sure, yeah. And... Everybody else in the field, it would be a shock after those four. I think maybe Nishikori, maybe not, but um, anybody else would be a really big surprise. And it, it seems like a kind of sloppy way of thinking that's riddled with logical fallacies because you sort of, I, I, I'm, I'm asking us to think after the fact, before the fact. So it, it's, it's this weird post hoc, ergo propter hoc, but worse than that. But I think it's useful in thinking about, just thinking thinking about how unexpected an event would be because that's I think that's sometimes the the question we're asking even if we're not asking it explicitly is how surprised will we be and if we ask that if we do ask that explicitly then we get a better idea of what we expect from someone like Djokovic even if his odds going into a tournament are I don't know six or seven percent to win and especially now that he's challenged in it all even if it is only for one set even if he didn't even manage to win it I think we have to look at him the same way in Roland Garros. I mean, Carl, would you agree that that he goes into to Paris as I don't know one of the top four favorites? Yeah, I think the top four is is captured pretty well by Ilo, Rafa, Zverev, Team, and and Djokovic. And this conversation had me thinking about something that Ilo currently isn't really factoring in. Right, it's not factoring in margin of victory. It's just who you beat. Or lose to right, him. and if I look back, I think a, a lot of people would mark kind of the the decline of Djokovic to uh, his loss at Wimbledon last in twenty sixteen to Sam Querrey. If you look at the losses since then, which is really the things that those are those are what would knock down his Elo points plus this adjustment for the time he was out, which was actually not that much relative to some other times that players have been out in the last few years. Um, his losses have generally either been close or to a really good player or both. And the Novak before then 
was rarely playing close matches, and when he was, he was winning. So I don't think we're anywhere near that Novak now. But as you pointed out, even a pretty big decline from that level is still going to be one of the very top players, especially when the guys you'd have expected to fill that spot either haven't progressed or are also out, or both. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure that saying that Djokovic is the third or fourth favorite is is entirely praising him as much as as it is just casting about for some option. And there aren't a lot right now. I mean, the only other names you can really think of are maybe Marin Cilic, but I mean, it's not a good surface for him. Um, maybe Goffin, but it, it's kind of a stretch. Or if, if Favrinka comes charging back by some miracle of, of uh, the, the health system he's been stuck in. But, well, you know, that yeah. really goes back to your point of which one would have the headline stuns. And I think Vavrinka would be stuns. I think Goffin would be stuns. Maybe not in Rome, but in the French Open. Definitely. Um, Chilich, definitely not, because we've seen him and we've seen him win a slam and, and make a couple of recent slam finals. Uh, so maybe by that by that measure, we should move him up. But it's it's pretty it's a pretty useful quick shorthand, um, which is funny because I don't think either Jeff or I would put a lot of stock in the forecasting abilities of the press, but maybe their sort of like retroactive forecasting is better. Well, and I think that what they're capturing is the conventional wisdom in a way that, I don't know, it's, it's, it's weird to talk about what we are, the questions we're explicitly and implicitly asking and what we're capturing, the conventional wisdom that we're, we're capturing and not capturing. This gets messy to, to try to, to speak about clearly, but like the press are writing these headlines based on some very crude estimations of everyone's ability thrown in with some name recognition. So the name recognition part is going to throw off this this heuristic. But the idea that... I, I think something that I, I've messed around with in forecasting systems for not recently, but for a long time, is that I, always, I have this prior that a player who has been good in the past is more likely to post a good result now. So if you're comparing, let's say David Ferrer is 20th in Clay Elo right now, just to throw somebody out there. So if you take Ferrer and say he's 20th and, and take Philip Kohlschreiber and say he's 21st and they're basically tied. Um, I'm making up these numbers, but I would be less surprised if Ferrer made a run to the semifinals at Roland Garros but only because he's done it in the past, not because I necessarily think he's better. I mean, back when Andy Roddick was hanging on for a few years and not really winning very much, uh, it seemed like he was he was talked up as a potential guy to make a run every week just because we knew that Andy Roddick of five years earlier could do that. Uh, and I, I've never really proven that that's a thing. So maybe I'm, I'm making this weird conventional wisdom case for something that I've disproven, but it, it still feels so right that someone who had the potential once in the past to do something still will do it. And certainly in the case of Djokovic, I mean, it's, it's not as much of a stretch as it is for someone like Andy Roddick, years removed from his major, or David Ferrer on clay right now. Djokovic is a year removed from being really, really good. So, I mean, in that case, the conventional wisdom is capturing something that I, I think is correct, that we wouldn't be that surprised if he just... You know, flipped a switch and all of a sudden went back to winning everything except for the occasional loss to to Nadal on clay or Federer on other surfaces. It's yeah, it's it's also just bringing to mind how high our standards are for Novak and Rafa and Roger and Andy. That when you look at some of the stretches in Agassiz and Sampras's careers they were able to maintain a pretty high ranking, let alone ELO, and and yet, you know, go through many tournaments in a row, in Sampras's case, pretty much every clay season, without good results. And I imagine they faced criticism that was more tempered because there wasn't the, the presence of social media. But they, they bounced back, and it, it was... And, and when you look back on the stats now, it does not look stunning. Some of it looks stunning. Maybe Sampras winning that last U.S. Open and then riding off into the sunset. But for the most part, 
it just seems like, yeah, that's tennis. You have some tough weeks. You have some tough opponents, tough draws and tough surfaces. And then you bounce back because you're one of the best of all time. Yeah, I, I think we have been spoiled. And whether you view that, view that as a good thing or not, that we've had the big four era that's really defined how we understand tennis for, I don't know, pushing 15 years now. Uh, it does give us the wrong idea about what to expect going forward, or even from those four guys right now. And to jump ahead a little bit in my, my plan for how what I wanted to cover in this week's episode, I have been thinking lately about how if we are entering a weak era, then... I'm actually happy about it. I mean, people talk about a weak era like it's a bad thing. I mean, the word weak has pretty obvious negative connotations. You don't want to be weak, but it, it's clear that we are coming out of either a strong era or a strong or a top heavy era, you can say at the very least. And if, if these four guys don't come back slash retire slash fade, then it's not really clear what's going to happen next. And we are in this transition period where aside from Nadal on clay, you can't really count on anything. You can't expect these these huge semifinals between the big four at every Masters event. Um, but frankly, I love it. I think it's great that we go into every tournament where it's it's tough to really pin down who even the, the, the second or third favorite is, and you can have a 20-year-old suddenly show up and, and start dominating, even if there are some question marks involved. And you have guys like Diego Schwartzman who despite his limitations, is someone you could see in the quarterfinals of any, any given week. I mean, the list goes on of the benefits here, but to me, the fact that it's unpredictable is more than enough compensation for the fact that we don't, we aren't guaranteed the sort of marquee semifinal and final matchups that we got used to for so many years. I mean, Carl, what do you think about this? Do, do you think it's it, it's an improvement to enter a, a weak era, or are you already pining for the big four years? I have complicated feelings. On the one hand, this is a debate that happens every year in March Madness, college basketball in the U.S. Do you want early upsets, even if it means the later rounds don't have as many great matchups of, of top players, of top teams? And... I think the answer is you want early upsets because all the fun is in the beginning. In in, torn, in tennis tournaments, so much of the attention is on the later rounds. And something I've been thinking about a lot in recent weeks is this is a reflection based on, let's say, traffic numbers to articles I've written in my life covering tennis. And just the percentage of the overall tennis interest out there let's say in terms you can you can measure in terms of total clicks that goes to just a few players and even within those few players there's a clear hierarchy like <laughs> a very clear hierarchy starting with roger federer and then a few empty spots on the list and then everyone else exactly and it's a thing i've been trying to fight against uh i mean i did god i did a feature story for 538 about mario ancic I'm not sure it's a good idea anyway. It was kind of random. Um, I did another feature story about David Goffin. Like, it's definitely trying to to expand people's horizon. But when they're choosing what to click on, if they're not a diehard tennis fan, it's going to really depend on who's there. And as as a diehard tennis fan, maybe I shouldn't care. And I should just be excited that it's... Um, that there's great tennis happening and I should in fact enjoy this even more because there are more names that are getting to play on major courts and getting to be on TV. But if way fewer people are watching them on TV, if way fewer people are talking about them, if way fewer people are even aware that the tournament is happening, that does seem like a price to pay. And it's a price to pay for the sport and that matters immensely because if the sport has less money, then that means less money will go to training and development and young players who can't afford it and that will over time decrease the quality of the sport and, and the talent pool and it will also decrease the fan experience and the number of tournaments and, and so many tournaments find it tough to survive anyway and I think it also makes it harder to be a fan I think part of what's fun about being a fan is being able to talk about the sport with other people and it's it's great that Jeff and I can talk despite being separated by an ocean and that the internet in general has has brought this group of diehard tennis fans together in a way that 
maybe makes it possible for them to appreciate to experience that community even if they don't have it right around them but there's still something pretty fun about going to a local bar and watching a match and being with people in person and having them actually bring up tennis and that's the serendipity that that, that, that brings so I definitely feel that trade-off. I mean, I'm thinking about it with the U.S. Open and Serena Williams. And even with with American players having breakthroughs last year, it didn't feel the same with her, but there was an excitement in the air with those players. And I'm really hoping she's back in form by by this year's U.S. Open because I live in New York. And the energy that's felt in the city at large really does depend to some extent on which players are in it. Yeah, one of the things that frustrates me about tennis is that there's the number of players who have that sort of power over controlling fan interest or influencing fan interest uh, is so small. Because you mentioned Goffin and Mario Ancic. I mean, Ancic, when you wrote that feature, I'm guessing that was after his retirement. So maybe that's a not the best example. But he's, I think he cracked the top five, right? Yep. He's a former top five player. That's right. And Goffin, I don't know if he's cracked top five, but he's been a perennial top 10 guy, at least for a few, a few years. And think about any, any other sport with the level of global interest that tennis has. And these are guys who are among the top 10 in the world, or say top 20, if you, if you include men and women. And think about who like the 15th best, I don't know, the 15th best soccer player is, or who the 15th best baseball player is. Like, 15th best baseball player is a perennial all-star starter and someone who's, I mean, I don't know, they've got their their faces on billboard, they're making $10 million a year. I mean, they're they're major celebrities. And the equivalent in tennis is W. Goffin because instead of tennis working the same way, we funnel so much attention to just the, the top few names. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't know how much of an actual problem it is, but that's it, it is something that frustrates me to say that the only reason we can talk about Goffin is because we're these crazy tennis geeks. Um, and we may be crazy tennis geeks, but it's 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 still somebody who I, I would think even casual fans should be very familiar with. Yeah, uh, I. it's one reason that I tend to be way more into alternative formats than most fans I know, including Jeff Sackman. Team formats are ha- are the reason why number 15 in the world is a big deal in other sports. I mean, in golf, there are other reasons, but I, I think golf suffers somewhat from the same problem. Whereas, just think about how much attention was paid to Federer Nadal playing doubles in Labor Cup and what that meant for everyone else who was on screen and everyone else who became part of that story in a way that just is never true if Federer is playing against Nadal in singles. Yeah, that, that's true. And, and, and even though I am on record as not liking alternative formats nearly as much as you do, uh, I, I totally agree about the, the, the team factor. I mean, certainly that it, you can't deny that that's a major reason why people engage with other sports and players of other sports in a different way than they do with tennis. I think what's what's frustrating for me about trying to care about Labor Cup or Hoffman Cup or Davis Cup, either current or future, is it's it's all kind of a sideshow to the main the main yearly showdown. And if 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 there were a way for the team events to take a more central role, uh, I mean that would represent a total change in the way the sport works. I don't I have no idea how that would work, but it, it it's tough for me to get into that just because I, I I care about who's the best in the sport or who's who's performing the best from week to week and the way that that story works in tennis, it it doesn't really accommodate those sorts of events, which is why Labor Cup and Hopman Cup and so on are are basically just exhibitions. They are completely irrelevant to year-end rankings and things like that. But but certainly they they do drive a lot of fan engagement. So tough to deny that. But since you were talking about Serena, um, I don't want to spend too much time just talking in really broad generalities. But let's get back to Serena and and talk about her comeback. Um, I was really interested and also quite pleased with how the the, the time off penalty for Elo uh, worked out for the top women since one of the reasons why I've been meaning to run these calculations and devise a new algorithm for, I don't know, months, if not years, is because we've had Serena and Sharapova and Azarenka sort of looming 
for it's not the same for all three but one or more of them for the last year or two and i don't know that that either elo or the official rankings has done any any kind of good job of representing how good they are at any given time or what we can expect from them at any given time because sharapova is certainly not a top two player anymore but she's also not probably a number 60 in the world player like the official rankings have her so with the revision it ended up putting serena i think at number seven overall sharapova in the top 20 and then azarenka around there somewhere and with sharapova's results these this past week she moved up to ninth in the clay elo with her semifinal in rome um, Serena's 11th in clay elo. So, now, Carl, Jeff, before yeah. we go on, are you straining because you have to actually like count one by one? No. Because <laughs> no, that's one of my, my uh, desires for Tennis Abstract and maybe some listeners share is to be able to see the number for the ranking for the surface if you click on the surface. I mean, this is asking for more free stuff from a site that's full of awesome free stuff. But to me, I have to like count down to Sharapova to see that she's ninth. Well, please don't count down to Azarenka on clay <laughs> because then, then, then you'll I'll lose you for a little while. Well, the, the reason um, it came up is I was like, wait, Federer is way down on clay. And then I, I realized that it was too far to count. But he looks like he's about 50th on clay, which is kind of awesome. It's like a, Roger just checked tennis abstract, and that's why he skipped the clay season. <laughs> well, I think what happened there is when I the way that my penalty works is it basically just takes your number of number of weeks off and if you're if you're out for eight weeks or more not counting the off season then the, there's a penalty you just automatically lose a bunch of points um, starting around 100 for an eight-week break up to about 150 for either a 30-week break or a full year break I forget what 150 correlates to but you lose those points and you lose those points for both the overall ranking and the specific surface rankings so Federer was never number one on clay obviously but he was pretty good but when you think about how long it's been since he played a clay court tournament, and that's after he took a fair amount of time off. So we took a not great ranking or rating rather and applied the penalty and then he hasn't done anything to, to raise it back up again. So that's why it is where it is. I'm not sure how, how much to read into a low clay court rating for someone like Federer because he hasn't played on clay for a couple of years, but I don't know. It, it, it doesn't seem totally wrong. I, I'm, I don't know what to expect from him on a clay court at this point. We'll never know, probably. Anyway, yeah. you were about you were about to say something about Sharapova and Serena Williams. So go on. Number nine yeah. and eleven on Clay Elo. Nine and eleven, and maybe this will inspire me to make it easier to see that on the tennis abstract Elo rating page. So having seen the semifinal in which Sharapova played Halep really close and played really well, I felt like, I mean, her, her backhand was absolutely locked in. Uh, the thing that always impresses me about Sharapova when I haven't watched her for a while is how resourceful she is as a defensive player, even though that's not really her game style. I mean, the fact that she can, she can hit a defensive lob left-handed and somehow mm-hmm. plant it near the baseline to stay in a point. I mean, you never think about that when you're thinking about, what makes Sharapova great. But I think that her and to a lesser extent Serena, those are the things that take them from being, I don't know, let's say an Ostapenko style or Kvitova style basher who gets a lot of success, but raises that to a a whole nother level when their games are on. So anyway, to me, Sharapova totally deserves to be treated as a top 10 favorite going into Roland Garros, maybe even a little better. Uh, Serena... We know a lot less about her right now on clay since it's been so long uh, since we've seen her play on clay. But what do you think, Carl? I mean, you can use my my surprise heuristic if you'd like. But how how do you see those two factoring into Roland Garros? Uh, you know, I think there are just a lot of top women who they'd have to navigate. So I think it'll depend so much on the draw. I think that'll. You know, the, the women's draw is going to be really exciting. There's some men looming with low rankings, but Serena Williams still being such a mystery in terms of what her form is at this point, but also being, you know, 23-time major champ. And then Sharapova, having had so much success on clay and at the French Open and having this really good result in Rome and showing herself to be a real contender, I think they could, you know, draw each other in the first round uh Sharapova will be seeded it looks like so she won't draw one of the seeds in the first round but she could in 
the third round or, or beyond draw someone really high up. In fact, she probably will based on her ranking. So I, I think this will, like with Serena Williams, there's, there's just a big element that neither you or I are going to know about right now in the show that we can't talk about, which is how, how good is she right now? Uh, you know, it's possible she doesn't play the tournament. With, with Sharapova, it's really um, where, where does she land and is that a bigger problem for her or for whom she is near in the draw? Yeah, it will be really interesting to see that draw come out. I mean, it, it's so fascinating right now. I, when we were talking about the weak era versus the big four era, that ends up being a, an ATP-focused conversation. But if you want to talk about the the positive aspects of a weak era, I mean, I don't know whether it's fair to call this a weak era on the women's side right now, but it's definitely an up for grabs in a way that I can't think of a, a parallel. Uh, just if you were to come up with a list of names who who have a chance to win Roland Garros right now, I don't think a lot of fans would even come up with Kiki Burton's or Elise Mertens. Uh, maybe Burton's because we've been talking her up so much, even though she ended up losing to Maria Sakari in the first round last week. But those two are actually third and fourth in the clay elo. Now, I think that Mertens might be a little bit high. I think the elo tends to overrate people a little bit if they have a run of, of easy wins like Mertens has. But... I mean, I think it's fair to say they're both top 10 clay players. And like like I said, that most fans wouldn't even put them in the top 10 or top 20. And then you have Sharapova and Serena lurking. I mean, they're, anything could happen. And when you have that many players then who are credible contenders, the draw is going to play a huge factor. Uh, because I mean, the, the draw can't protect that many women. <laughs> it can really only protect... I don't know, depending on what you mean by protect, four or eight. And if you have lurking players like Sharapova and, and Serena, then can't even protect them. I mean, the way that Halep's luck has been, I mean, she drew Sharapova in the first round in, in at the U.S. Open last year. She uh, came within a set of having to play Victoria Azarenka in her first match in Rome this past week. I mean, maybe she'll be the one who who's unlucky enough to face Serena Williams in her first round match in Paris. But... Yeah, a, a lot will be determined just by the luck of the draw. I'm, I was a little forgetful of how good Serena Williams was in her last clay matches. I know it's been a while, but she won the 2015. She, she, um, you go back even, even farther. She just hasn't lost that many matches since she got routed by a young Muguruza at the 2014 French Open. I mean, she lost to Kvitova in Madrid, a place where Kvitova is great at the 2015 in 2015 and then after that she went on to win the french open and then she won rome in 2016 and then lost again to muguruza a very tough clay player at the 2016 french open and that's it so that that clay elo is not just on the strength of serena williams being serena williams generally but on her being having a really impressive recent clay record so it's it's <laughs> I'm glad it's not my job to lay odds on Serena going into the tournament. Yeah, that would be a tough one. One other name that we haven't talked about very much is the defending champion Elena Ostapenko and she had I mean she's had some good results in in her year as a reigning French Open champion. Um, but she doesn't seem like much of a favorite, aside from the fact that she is the defending champion. What do you think, where would you set the over-under for her on where she ends up? Like, is she, does she lose in the quarterfinals, semifinals? What do you see happening there? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you named the two rounds that seem most likely. Her her seeding is probably going to be five, which you mentioned earlier as her, as her current ranking. So that's going to mean that, if if the draw plays according to form, then she's going to face a higher seed in the quarterfinals. And she's also, I mean, like that's that's been a common endpoint for her since winning the French Open, kind of the quarters or the semis. She's actually been way more consistent than I expected. I think there's we've talked about this before on the show. There's this fallacy of if a player seems inconsistent because they are very risk-taking in individual shots, that will lead to inconsistent results, whereas, in fact, they can have even more consistent results because it makes the quality of their opponent less significant. Um, 
or you know there, there may be other reasons that we arrived upon that I'm not stating well now but in any case she has been she, you know she was kind of come out of nowhere turning 20 during the French Open maybe it was during the final or on the day of the final and winning the tournament and there was a possibility of oh she might not do anything else for the rest rest of the time and then she went and made the quarterfinals in Wimbledon and she went and won Seoul so she's had some good results since then but it still feels like a, an anomalous result to some extent and like quarterfinals or semifinals are her most likely outcome yeah I, I think so too I mean I wouldn't be shocked to see her lose early I, w- I would be more shocked to see her return to the final and especially to win it but uh, it will be one of the big stories I think to, to see how well she does play as the defending champion uh, there's one last thing I want to talk about on this episode as we close in on the one hour mark um, this is something that came up with a couple different players this week in Rome and it's a factor every week but it's it's not talked about too much and that's fatigue between matches that's not even for the two players and Djokovic carped about it a little bit because his quarterfinal match was after Nadal's so he had relatively less time between his quarterfinal than than Nadal did before before their semifinal match the following day and Zverev made a couple comments about it as well because he was playing the last match of the day a couple times so he had a couple of 3 30 4 a.m bedtimes and he never had to come back and play early but in the final he was playing against a probably better rest in Nadal I think um maybe in the semifinal as well he even though the semifinal was later than Nadal's his semifinal was earlier than his quarterfinal was so so he would he was adjusting and playing against players who were better rested for, for, for several rounds. Um, like I say, that's a factor every week. Uh, that's just how it's, how it has to be. If you're going to put most of the quarterfinals on one court or two, both of the semifinals on one court, someone's going to have that advantage. How big of an advantage do you think that is? I mean, do you think that's something that maybe one player having three or four extra hours of rest could end up swaying the result of the following match? I do, and I've really come around on this point. I used to be more skeptical and think, well, either way, like that's a small percentage of total time. But I think I have a greater appreciation now for just how much players do between matches and how important that is. And we, we know about the visible stuff, like they have to do media. But there's all sorts of things behind the scenes, like getting massages and taking ice baths and of course, looking at data and analytics and watching video. Uh, but, you know, seriously talking to their coaches and, and prepping for the next match. And then there's sleep. And this is a thing that sounds minor, but there's so much research about now that sleep really has enormous restorative power. So I think having an advantage, having those extra three or four hours, like there's that time on the margin that if you don't have it, could cut into all of those things in some percentage way, just you get all of them in. And add on top of that, the player knowing that they didn't get the usual preparation or the same preparation as the opponent and what effect that would have on the player's mentality going into the match. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it, it The general subject of fatigue, that's something that I, I know Stephanie Kowalczyk has looked at a little bit. Um, I think maybe some other people have researched Kowalczyk, it. a researcher for Tennis Australia. Yep. Thank you, Carl. Um, she's done a little bit. I think there have been a couple other academic papers on it. Um, the 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 way that I have my data organized, I, I don't have even the specific date of all matches, let alone the, the specific time. But I did notice that at least one uh, resource online, I think it's flashscore.com, has the date and time of every match. And I, I know from other data sets that sometimes it gets mucked up a little bit because of time zones. Like there's one data set I've seen that all the times are in UTC. So sometimes the date is wrong for things that are in in the US because they happen on a different day according to um, the again according to UTC in, in Greenwich Mean Time. But for a single tournament it doesn't really matter. It would give you the relative amount of time that players have between matches and maybe there maybe there is enough data there to, to do a little work and see whether it ends up mattering. Even if you just looked at the semifinals to finals because virtually every tournament the semifinals are going to be played on the same day but 
sequentially. So that this same scenario is going to play out at least a little bit uh, every week in every tournament and even quarterfinals to semifinals probably as well, but maybe that complicates it too much. So this is something we can answer with some analysis. Maybe someone will have the, the time and the inclination to do that. But it, do, it does seem like a factor. I think the bigger question is if it is a factor, then what we do about it, because I don't think tournaments are about to put one of their semifinals on the, the second biggest court at the same time as their other semifinal. Um, and then oh, you and, have and all even the... bigger than which court is the TV issue that you want them to be live sequentially, not live at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. So that's a factor as well. And then even if you did try to make it more fair, um, then once you know that there's an advantage, you think about it more and realize that top players have a little more sway in scheduling and court assignments and things like that. So that becomes a factor as well. So if someone did come along and prove that you know, that playing the later semifinal had a you know, knocked off, I don't know, 2% of someone's ELO points or something like that, or reduced their chances of winning the final by 5%, then that could really open up a whole can of worms as to how you straighten that out. It, it would be a, a pretty major finding, I think. So um, it, it's good to see the, the issue being aired a little by the players. I'm sure players have thought about it for a long time, especially when they lost and are looking for a reason why. But it, it's something that analysts could spend more time with, I think. And I want players to air more issues generally. They had a closed-door meeting where Novak Djokovic spoke at the Australian Open, and I still am not sure what was said there or what's come out of it. Well, I think he was in dialogue with Barack Obama's closed-door speech at the Sloan Conference this year. There, there's a whole like Illuminati-style closed-door oratory club. And I don't know what's going on. But I think that's my theory. Jeff, maybe we should wrap this and start our closed-door uh, discussions on how to reform tennis without tennis knowing it. Yeah, tennis definitely won't know about it. That's the key part of my plan. <laughs> so, Carl, thank you as always for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Everyone, thank you for listening. Um, hopefully we'll be back with you to preview Roland Garros once we have the draws next week. So, if all goes well, we will see you then.